Do they know it's Christmas? Well, it was a number one hit record, not once, but twice. In 1984, and then again in 2004. It was for a very worthwhile cause, wasn't it? Band-Aid came together to feed the world at a time of year when everyone gave and received gifts. So what about, do they know it's Easter? It's not a hit record, and I don't suppose it's ever likely to be a hit record. Somehow, Easter seems less marketable than Christmas. can't imagine, you know, somebody starting a project to give all the people in the world a Cadbury's cream egg, can you really? But although the birth of Jesus is obviously important, without it the story wouldn't have begun, his death and resurrection, Easter, are far more important because without them, the story would never have come to a successful conclusion. And that's why, in the New Testament part of the Bible, the four Gospel stories that tell about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they devote a huge amount to the story of Easter, the last two weeks of the life of Jesus, compared to the beginning of his life. For you see, Easter offers more than chocolate eggs to those who experience its true meaning. And I simply want on this occasion, on another Easter Sunday, to read one of the stories about an Easter experience. We've been making our way through John's Gospel, the fourth of the Gospels. So, we're going to read just 14 verses, then I'm going to comment on them briefly. If you have a Bible, it will help to turn to it. If you don't, there are Bibles in the pews. It's page 1090 in the pew Bibles. It's a story, an Easter story, about the experience of seven men. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, means twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples, don't know their names, were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. I'm guessing the intonation there, having been fisherman and asked this myself on several occasions when I've caught nothing. No. He said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John, the one who wrote this gospel, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. 
Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word, an eyewitness account. What happened? Let me just say three things about this Easter experience which maybe resonate with your experience or could do today, 2006. First of all, notice it was a frustrating experience. Much to their amazement and joy, the 11 remaining disciples of Jesus had discovered that their Lord and Master had really risen from the dead. On the Sunday evening, following his death by crucifixion on the Friday, that evening, suddenly, Jesus appeared among them through the walls somehow, through locked doors, and stood among them and demonstrated it really was him and they were filled with joy because they'd been hiding away in fear. And then just as suddenly disappeared again. Well, what did it mean? What were they to do? Well, the angel who had appeared to the women who were first at the tomb had been given some directions. Jesus had sent them a message about an appointment in Galilee, where they came from. This is what Mark writes. The angel said to the women, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. Now, they were in Jerusalem at this time, so obeying these instructions, they headed off to Galilee. Back to beginnings. Back north. We don't know how long they waited when they got there for Jesus to show up. To keep his promised appointment. Perhaps recalling the first time they'd ever met Jesus about three years ago, it had been by the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Tiberias. It was called different names. So maybe they walked along its shore. Some of them had grown up there. They'd made their living catching fish by this very lake. Maybe they caught it with friends and family. For at least two of them belonged to a family fishing business and their father was presumably still playing his trade on the lake. But still no sign of Jesus. And so... Peter, ever the activist, I'm a Peter and I sympathise because I'm like that, I don't like sitting around, decided that he will pass the time by taking up their old trade. Let's go back to fishing. I'm going fishing, said Peter. And the other six said, okay, we'll go with you. I wonder, was it just a legitimate way to pass the time? Or maybe get a bit of income? You've got to eat? Or was it more? Were they not going back on their commitment they'd made to Jesus those three years before? Three years ago, Jesus had called them to follow him, to leave their fishing, and he'd given them a new mission in life. Mark 1 tells us, Come follow me, Jesus said, 
and I will make you fishes of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Maybe they were going back on their commitment. I just wonder whether that resonates with anybody here. Maybe three years ago, 30 years ago, you heard the call of Jesus and you responded in obedience. You left your old way of life and followed Jesus. Maybe you were even baptised in a pool like this. Maybe this pool. But as with the disciples, though, maybe for different reasons, all sorts of things have happened that maybe you can't understand. And the result is that you've now lost touch with Jesus. And when you do that, what do you do? Well, most people go back to what they were doing before. Back to fishing. Or whatever it was that Jesus called you from when you started out. Or maybe you're a Christian and you're at that point where you're tempted to do so. You've lost touch with the reality of the risen Jesus. And when we sing all these great hymns on Easter Sunday, it leaves you cold and you think, I remember I used to sing those songs and they really used to move me, but now I just don't know where I'm going in life really. And maybe I should just go back and give up. Whatever the case this morning, can I simply say this to you? Going back always, always leads to frustration. It's a fruitless exercise, or for the disciples, a fishless exercise. I'm told on good authority, and I've been to Galilee, that night time is the best time to fish. And these disciples knew that. Several of them were skilled fishermen. But not this night. Verse 3, so they went out, got into the boat that night, but caught nothing. Was it just one of those nights? Or were their fishing skills a bit rusty? Or was it again something more? You see, just a few days previously, we studied it in this church, in John's Gospel, Jesus had been trying to teach the disciples something really important about maintaining an intimate relationship with him. This is what he said. He used another picture. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. You're connected to me in a living relationship. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Fished all night and caught nothing. Same experience. Of course, he doesn't literally mean nothing. Without Jesus, you can still walk and talk. You can even learn a living and maybe a good living. You can even catch fish, as far as I know from the fishing magazines I've read. I don't know that any of the champions of fishing and angling are practicing Christians. No, what it means is you can do nothing of any real lasting value, of satisfying worth, or to use the picture Jesus uses, nothing fruitful. And in order to reinforce that lesson, the disciples can't catch anything. They go back to what's familiar and they end up in frustration. Strange thing, not many of us really believe that until we actually prove it. You would think that a person who had experienced the power and presence of Christ in his or her life would never settle for anything else. But such is the pull of the world and the lie of the devil that to continue with the fishing, we fall for it hook, line and sinker. Take it from me, there are a lot of frustrated and dissatisfied practicing Christians, professing Christians around. Though they may not admit it out loud. 
There are those who have gone back to their old haunts and their old habits and lo and behold, they discover something. The things they once enjoyed no longer satisfy and even the things we were once really good at now seem a waste of time. And I simply want to say to you this morning, if this is a word for you this morning from God, don't ignore it. But I also want to say something more encouraging. Because God doesn't bring us to this place to rub our nose in it and say, I told you so, there. But so we might have a fresh encounter, a fresh Easter experience. But notice secondly, their frustrating experience is followed by a familiar experience. All of us know what deja vu is. You know, it's that experience where something happens to you and you think, this has happened to me before sometime. Sometimes, as in the case of a book we read or maybe a film we see, we've forgotten it long ago and it just comes back. Our memories are incredible, aren't they? The way things trigger back in our minds. But usually what happens is something happens to us that has similarities with something that's happened in the past. And this is what happens with these seven disciples on this occasion. After a night's frustration trying to catch fish on the lake, they're pulling in near to the shore. And dawn is breaking. And through the morning mist, as they're pulling into shore, they see dimly, through the mist, a figure standing on the shore. It's Jesus, finally making an appearance, but the disciples don't recognise who it is. And he calls out this awful question, which fishermen hate. Friends, haven't you any fish? In actual fact, that, that's a paraphrase. The original Greek actually says, friends or boys... Haven't you caught something nice to eat? That's what it actually says. You're hungry. Jesus is not asking primarily, have you caught lots of fish so you can sell them in Capernaum and make a bit of money? Rather it's, have you got something nice to eat which will satisfy you after a long cold night on a lake? You see, we eat to work, but we also work to eat. We seek something which will satisfy us, which will truly fulfil us. And we find it hard, as hard as a fisherman who spent a night fruitlessly, fishlessly on a lake, to actually admit that all our efforts have proved unproductive. Hence the very terse answer, which is an admission. No, they answered verse 3. But it's an admission of failure which opens them up to the possibility of success. So the stranger in the shore responds and he says, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you will... Find some. Why they should pay any attention to this is not clear. I mean, what would you do if you were fishing and you're an expert and you've caught nothing and then some guy comes along and says, oh, just try that, you know. Well, you have to be pretty desperate. But here's where deja vu kicks in. You see, this bears a very striking resemblance to something that happened to them about three years ago. In fact, it's so similar that some critics say, oh, it's the same story repeated twice. Because most critics of the New Testament work on the theory that the same kind of things never happen twice in life, which is stupid, but never mind. But it misses the whole point. The whole point is that Jesus, what they're going to learn, is that Jesus is still the same. The New Testament lecture to the Hebrews puts it like this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Three years previously, Jesus 
had been with his disciples by this very same lake. He was actually preaching from the fishing boat because the crowds were so great. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, same character here, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, listen, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Now today, here's a similar experience. A similar command, he said. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find something. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And one of the disciples, the one Jesus loved, probably John, who wrote this gospel, suddenly realized that suddenly deja vu becomes reality. He says, it's the Lord! The same Lord. And Simon Peter, still the action man, grabs a cloak around him. We're not quite sure why he grabbed a cloak to swim a hundred yards, but... um, maybe he just needs to cover up a bit but he wrapped it round him and he leapt over the side of the boat it's a lovely story I don't know whether he swam or waded he's about a hundred yards away so I presume it wasn't too deep but he's just slamming to the shore to get to Jesus leaves, leaves the other six to get the boat to shore with this, with this full net you see despite his past failures which are addressed later and we don't have time to look at it Peter wants a fresh encounter with Jesus. Now, I simply ask you this morning, is that your desire this morning? A fresh encounter with the risen Jesus in which you experience his power. Maybe like Peter, you've fallen on your face. Peter denied Jesus. Did you notice when he made that appointment? Jesus said, tell the disciples, I'm Peter, I'll see you in Galilee. It's a special message for him to say, I'll see you there, Peter. We'll sort this out later. And today, maybe in your frustration, maybe you've failed as a Christian. You know, you've let the side down badly. Maybe you've let your family down. You've let the Lord down. And you just feel, well, this is for other people, it's not for me. Listen, Easter is about a familiar experience, a fresh encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And today he appears, the word is literally, Jesus made himself known. He, He chose the time. He chose the place, he chose the details to meet exactly the needs of these disciples and especially Peter. And when he makes an appointment with you, make sure you don't miss it. Maybe he's brought you here to Charlotte Chapel this morning for an appointment. Don't say, oh well I'll come back next week. Because you might just come here and sit right through it and God might It just might not touch you in the slightest. Maybe you've never had a personal encounter with Jesus. But all your life you've been searching. What was it about life? What does it mean? There must be more to life than this. There must be something that will satisfy. And here's a wonderful thing. When you find Jesus, or more accurately, when he finds you, you suddenly think, this is the person I've been looking for all my life. St. Augustine put it very famously that he's the end of all our searching. He said, Thou, O Lord, hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So what do you find when you meet him? Well, here's the third and final thing. Almost finished. Frustrating experience, a familiar experience. Finally, a fulfilling experience. 
It's easy in a superficial reading of the story to miss one of the details. Did you notice that as they're hauling in this big net full of fish, Jesus has already got some fish that he's cooking for breakfast on the beach and some bread. It's a prepared meal. Cooked fish and bread. And he tells the disciples, bring some of your fish as well and let's make a really good meal of this. Come and have breakfast. You see, Jesus is the host who not only provides the bread and fish, but also serves his disciples. And they know who it is, but none of them dares ask him, who are you, Lord? Perhaps out of amazement, he really is you, Lord. Now, like the story of catching the fish, this one also would have brought back memories. Because these disciples had once sat on a hillside with a huge crowd of people, 5,000 men alone, plus women and children. Late evening, nothing to eat, and all they'd got was fish and bread, five loaves and two fish that a wee boy had brought in his piece for the day. And Jesus took it and he broke it and he fed the crowd. What was the point of the miracle? Well, John, who tells us this story in detail in his Gospel, in fact, it's in all the Gospels, all four of them, it's so important. The point is not that Jesus would feed the hungry of the world, though that's important but would offer them something far more important. You see, Jesus, after feeding these 5,000 people, turned to them and said, you're only after the bread and fish to fill your stomachs. I can offer you something more. John 6, 35, Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And Jesus said, I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice, my flesh, my body and my blood, so that you might really find fulfilment in the relationship with God for which you were made. That's what he did on the first Easter, when he died on the cross, bearing our sin, so that we might be forgiven. And God raised him from the dead on the third day to say, yes, mission accomplished. So now the risen Lord Jesus invites people to find a fulfilling relationship with him, that for which we were made. A renewed relationship with Jesus because you see, eating in that culture as in other parts of the world today still is a sign of acceptance, of friendship, of intimacy. The last book of the Bible pictures Jesus, a wonderful picture of Jesus. It says, Jesus said, here I am, I stand at the door, the door of your life and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. It's an invitation to first follow us. If you've never followed Jesus before, this is his invitation, a fulfilling relationship. It's an invitation to fail followers. The only relationship that can fulfill our deepest needs and restore us to that relationship with God for which we're made, which our friends have shared about their own experience this morning and will demonstrate in baptism in a moment. I've almost finished. But if you've been following this story, you'll say, is missed a major point in this story? What about the fish? That huge number of fish. The picture on the screen are the real thing. Tilapia Galilea. I keep fish, friends, so I'll tell you this for sure. Those are the kind of fish they catch on Galilee still today, if you've ever been there. What about the fish? Why so many and why 153? Friends, I could talk 
until my plane is due, which is taking me to Papua New Guinea on my first leg this evening, about what the 153 might mean and has been suggested in the past. Scholars have felled trees to write books on the significance of the 153. Did you know it's a triangular number of 17, for example? That if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 up to 17, and then if you take 10 and 7, you know what 10 means in the Bible. And, well, no, I'm not going to tell you all this stuff, friends. And did you know, if you study what's called gematria, that every Hebrew and Greek word has a significance in numbers. And if you add up the numbers of certain words in this, you get 153. Did you know that? Well, you don't need to know it. (laughs) In the day of the Da Vinci Code and weird symbolism, this may appear to some, here's what I think happened. I think when they pulled the net into land... One of the disciples, probably the one who worked out that there were 5,000 men on the previous occasion, (laughs) said, wow, there's an incredible number of fish here. Let's count them. (laughs) And they got to 153. It's a very useful number, friends. I use it on my little padlock when I lock my suitcase. (laughs) One, five, three. (laughs) So so now you can steal my... (laughs) When we get to the airport... In Singapore tomorrow, my wife will say, how do we open the suitcase? I go, how many fish? (laughs) What we have here, I think, is the record of an eyewitness, not the symbol, symbol of a numerologist. However, the large amount is significant, I think. In his commentary on John, which was looked at by Don Carson, he says, having reviewed all the evidence and get the commentary if you're interested in all the numerical values and everything. But it says, Even so, there may be symbolism in the sheer quantity, if not the numbers itself, since the evangelist draws attention to it. But even with so many, the net was not torn. So what should we learn from the large number? At least two things. The risen Lord Jesus can meet the needs of all the people of the world. It's a long tradition going right back to the early first Christian centuries that this, the number 153 has to do with world evangelism. I think it was St. Jerome who said at that time there were supposed to be 153 varieties of fish known in the world and that represents the number of nations in the world. Well, regardless, the detail is fanciful. The general point is significant. The good news of Jesus is good news for all people. There's plenty to go round. The same John who wrote this gospel wrote in his first letter, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin and not only for us but also for the sin of the world. So how are the needs of the world going to be met? Here's the second important point. Through the obedience of the followers of Jesus. I suppose he could have just said to 153 fish, jump out onto the beach. But he needed people to cooperate with him in this venture to draw the peoples of the world in to hear the gospel. That was the last commission Jesus gave to his followers. It still stands. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. It may seem an impossible task, but the resources are there, and all it needs is our obedience. For Jesus is the risen one who can still work miracles of multiplication. So the challenge to those of us today, the many of us here who celebrate 
the Easter experience that we've experienced is what about the rest of the world out there? The final question is, do they know it's Easter? Let's just pray for a moment.